Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's best books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 52 books per year and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each book. Today I'm going to cover the idea of Israel in Second Temple Judaism, a new theory of people, exile, and Israelite identity by Dr. Jason A. Staples. This is book 27 for my 2021 reading list. Well, I have Jason with me here today, and we're going to discuss the book a bit, and then I'm going to ask him a few questions. So Israel, fairly non-controversial topic, concept. Starts off in the book of Genesis, where Jacob is wrestling with an angel, and he gets renamed to Israel, which means struggles with God. Israel has 12 sons. They are the 12 tribes of Israel. Later on, we have the kingdom of Israel, which consists of a northern kingdom called Israel, and then a southern kingdom called Judah. The kingdom of Israel is attacked by the Assyrians. They are hauled off into exile. That is 722 BCE. Later on, the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, is attacked by the Babylonians, and they are carried off into exile. In that southern kingdom is a city called Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem is a temple, the temple that Solomon built. That temple is destroyed. That's the first temple. So after exile, they, they return to the land, and they start building the second temple. This is in 500s BC, and so the Second Temple period, the period of time in which this book refers to is the Second Temple from that period when they return to 70 AD when the Romans destroy that Second Temple. To complicate matters further, now we have a state of Israel. And so the idea of Israel is, is there's a lot going on here. So what are we to make of this? Well, that's what this book covers. That's just one portion of what this book covers. And to understand what the idea of Israel means, we have to go back to the source material, says Dr. Jason Staples. And that's what he does. He goes back to the biblical writers. He, he digs in deep to Josephus, Philo the apocryphal writers, and the Dead Sea Scrolls. So Jason, my first question to you is this. What does modern scholarship say about the term Israel, and what have you found in your 17 years of research in terms of what Israel means, and and especially how it's compared to to the term Jew, Hebrew, and Samaritan? Wow. Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me back on. Uh, For those of you who've been longtime listeners, you'll Remember that uh, Eric and I started this podcast together, and then uh, over the past couple of years, I've pretty much faded out, and he's taken over full, uh, full the the full responsibility for this one, uh, as I've been working on this book and uh, and its sequel, uh, and it's been really exciting to see what Eric has done with this. But uh, thank you for that. And as far as the uh, the question, it it's tricky, um, and for a lot of reasons. And the first is because. When you're dealing with this question, you are, as you mentioned, you're dealing with a question that that pertains to modern terminology as well, and and uh, the familiarity that we're all that we all have with with these particular terms in the modern world uh, can can be kind of a false friend when it comes to thinking about how uh, these terms were used in the ancient world, and and I want to emphasize that up front that you know words do not have meaning in and of themselves specific sounds or combination of combinations of sounds do not have inherent meaning you know the 
one word, a, a specific combination of sounds in English is not the not what that word means in another language. I mean, there, as I recall, in uh, Mandarin and Cantonese, I think it is the the numbers for one and two, the sounds for one and two are the opposite. And this just this is just the way it is. And so words mean what people use them to mean in specific contexts and uh, in specific discourses. And, and the trick to doing good history in something like this is recognizing that the discourse that you're looking at may be different from the discourse that uses very similar terminology or different things in your own period, and that those things may mean different things. Uh, that, that words take on different meaning over time and all of that. And that's that's basically what I'm trying to do. What I tried to do in this book is look at how these terms were actually used in Jewish literature from that, that time when the, the first temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple, was destroyed until around the time of the end of the first century. So this is the second temple period. And... Basically, uh, I wanted to look at how these terms are used because they it's widely been assumed that they, they they're functionally the same. So when you hear Israelite, when you hear Jew, when you hear Hebrew, even within scholarship, within biblical scholarship or within early Jewish scholarship, these words are often treated as though they're synonymous by this point. So there are times where you'll see scholars will use these terms interchangeably. And even translations where it may say Israelite in the ancient language, uh, the ancient equivalent for Israelite. And then you'll see a modern scholar oftentimes translate that as Jew or Jewish person. And the assumption is that these things mean the same thing. But the problem is that if the ancient terms meant the same thing, you would expect them to be used more or less interchangeably. For So if you did a scatter plot of the uh, the, the the appearance of these terms across that literature, you'd expect the scatter plot to basically be random across across these various terms if they're functionally synonymous, which is essentially what you see within biblical scholarship is is you're going to see the same terms used in different or different terms used in you know the same kind of context and interchangeably oftentimes just used differently for style. And what you don't see actually in the ancient literature is that kind of random scatter plot. Instead, there there are clearly defined patterns that show up that indicate that there is some sort of nuanced difference between all three terms. So to give a good example, in the writings of Josephus, he uses the term Israelite up until book 11. So there's 20 books of the of the Jewish antiquities, his big work, his, his biggest work. And he uses Israelite right up until book 11. By the, and then at the end of, the, of book 11, he doesn't use that term again anywhere else in his writings or in any other book that he writes. And the question is, well, why does he suddenly switch and he uses Yehudaios, the Greek equivalent of Jew, he uses Jew or Jewish person from then on. And so there's no randomness to this at all. It's it's pretty clear that he's transitioned in terminology, and he actually gives an explanation, and I discussed that in uh, in the first chapter of, of, of this book, of, of what explanation he gives for that. But he, uh, he specifically transitions from one term to another for a specific reason. The same thing happens in Philo of Alexandria, where he has a, a broad corpus, and there's only one tractate that he wrote 
where the same, where those two terms where Israelite and Jew actually appear in the same tractate and they're separated by like 200 paragraphs. So they're not the same thing. They're not treated as synonymous in, in these bodies of literature. And of course, then the question is why? And that's the thing that I, I really tried to get to the bottom of in this, in this book. And, and one of the things that, that stood out as I was working through this material uh, was that the, the, there actually has been a model that has been put forward as the, the basic explanation for why these are synonymous terms functionally, but they're used differently. What is the difference in nuance? Well, the most popular solution to this uh, to date has for the past 70, 80 years has been uh, an insider-outsider model, essentially. And in this model, Jew was an outsider term. It was a term that was used sometimes in a derogatory fashion by outsiders, but Israel or Israelite was the term that was preferred by insiders. And so, you know, this is their, this is the inside term that was preferred. Uh, and, you know, they, they would use the outsider term when talking with outsiders for accommodation purposes, but when, when among other insiders, then they would use, you know, the, the more, the more preferred term. And there are lots of examples of terms working this way. I mean, the term gypsy, for example, is an exonym, as it's called, an outsider term that is basically, it, it means something other than, uh, than what basically you've got in the, uh, in the, the insider notion. It's a, it's a term that is kind of a slur. And the insider term, the people who are often by outsiders called gypsies, are, they call themselves, they tend to call themselves Romani, right? These Romani people, in fact, in the 1960s, rejected the, the, the term gypsy entirely as a, as, a, as a term to describe them as a slur, as a derogatory thing and saying, basically, we won't accept anybody calling us this anymore. So and you, you've got examples of this. And so this was the way that 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 these terms were approached within uh, biblical scholarship, within uh within studies on early Judaism, looking at this period, it's just kind of been assumed that basically by the time you get into the second temple period, Israelite means Jew. Jew is equivalent essentially to Israelite and that these are sort of related in that way. But the problem is that the data, when you look more closely at the data, those, those things break down really quickly. That, that, uh, that narrative or that, explanation doesn't hold up very well. And, and a number of people had pointed this out that, you know, there's, there needs to be an awful lot of exceptions for this to work. Uh, and so that was one of the things that really stimulated me to, to write this book was to try to get to the bottom of that problem and explain, uh, to give a better explanation for what, what these terms actually meant and how they were used by people in that time period. And ultimately one of the things that was most interesting to me was the origin. I didn't realize that the origin of that insider outsider explanation was actually, uh, Carl G. Kuhn, who, uh, who wrote the entry for the, the theological or the theologisches Wörterbuch, the theological dictionary of the, of the new Testament, uh, back in the 1930s. And if you can't tell, that was a work that was done in Germany in the 1930s. And the guy who wrote it, it turns out, if you do a little digging, joined the Nazi party in 1932. 
And so then when you start reading his work, you kind of have to have a little bit of an an extra antenna up like, wait a second, I got to make sure that this guy's actually representing the data properly. And it turns out, again, when you actually look at the data and when you look at his interpretation of it, one of the things that sticks out is you go, you know, it's interesting. He says this is an outsider term that's sometimes used in a derogatory fashion. And in another place in that article, he talks about the uh, the derogatory nuance, that de- the depreciatory nuance that uh, so easily attaches itself to the term Jew uh, as opposed to Israelite. And this is why, of course, they prefer the inside, more insider term. But then when you start looking in the, the ancient literature for that stuff, when you start looking for the derogatory nuance, it doesn't show up in ancient literature. And you go, well, where did he get that? Oh, wait, if you go to Germany in the 1930s and you call someone a Jew, that was derogatory. And it turns out that the Jewish people in Germany tended to prefer, prefer to call themselves the Israelitische Gemeinde, the, 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 the Israelite community of a given town or whatever, rather than the, uh, the Juden of that town, because the one tended toward, uh, tended to be used as a slur by outsiders and the other tended to be regarded with respect due to its biblical heritage. So once that, once I saw that, it was like, okay, there really needs to be a better explanation for this. And, and that's really where this, where this book goes is, is trying to explain, uh, how this book is, or how this, how these terms are used and what they mean and how they relate to one another in, in the ancient world. And then what that, what some of the implications of that are. So that's a long segment just to get at the first part of, of what you're, what you asked, which was how this is all done and has been done in modern scholarship or what, what people have said before. And in brief, my solution is, is pretty simple that these, these terms, if you look at how they're actually used within the, the time period and within the, the discourse of the time period, there are, and as with anything, you know, words take on different, different meanings. I mean, there's a range of meanings uh, for each of these, but there, there's a basic kind of core concept, a basic concept that these, that these words uh, and, and the concepts underneath them designate. And it's pretty simple. I mean, the basic idea is that Israel is, uh, it traces back to this notion of a 12 tribe people of God that you see in the Hebrew Bible. And, uh, and that group includes, like I said, 12 tribes. One of those tribes becomes the dominant tribe of the Southern kingdom of Judah, which was distinct from the Northern kingdom of Israel. And from there you get Israel and Judah and together they comprise confusingly Israel. So that ultimately sort of sets the stage for Jew being essentially Judahite and Israel or Israelite referring to the the whole group or those from the Northern kingdom. And it turns out in my, my argument is that those distinctions that you see in the, in the Hebrew Bible actually are retained much longer than people thought. And they persist through the second temple period. Uh, and then Hebrew, of course, uh, I argue is a linguistic marker in the, uh, in the second temple period. And there's some other, there's some good evidence of that, but that is my, uh, not so brief, uh, monologue to introduce the basic ideas of the book and what it's trying to get at. Yeah. And, and the other, issue here is during that period, during the Second Temple Judaism, there's, a, there's another glaring problem. <laughs> As you identify, Israel does not exist. So what do you, what do, you do with that? And you, you, uh, you identify in the very first, first page of the book that this whole 
project, this whole inquiry was started because of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, where it talks about the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But Jeremiah is writing at a time where the house of Israel has not existed for a hundred years. So what in the world does he mean by the house of Israel? And, and that, you, you said that was one of the sparks of, of this inquiry as well. And so it, it seems as there's kind of two ways to go about that. One is that the returning exiles to Judah, that they took on the name Israel. And that's where you might have what you're saying, maybe in modern scholarship, where the terms are equal in the sense that this group came back. They were called the Jews because they were, they were from the tribe of Judah, but since Israel no longer existed, they, they, they took on that term for themselves. So then you could use those terms interchangeably. But what you noticed in the literature that time is that not, that's not how those terms were used at all. And if, if Israel does not exist at that time, but people are writing about Israel, what in the world does it mean? Right. And, and, and part of that is, is it's specifically, you have to go back to the time before the exiles where you actually did have a nation state named Israel. It was a group of, it was a tribal uh, community that was led by a monarch of sorts that called itself Israel. And they were related to, in, in many respects, religiously and otherwise to the group and to the South of them that called themselves Judah. Right. And in the Bible, of course, these two kingdoms originally came from one group and split off from one another due to some rivalry and some other political factors. And the one in the north is the one that actually kept the, the title Israel or the name Israel. And the one in the south went by the name of the, the big tribe there, the, the tribe of Judah. But that the whole thing is Israel, which, of course, is introducing confusion right from the start over what is Israel, who is Israel. Well, Israel is either the northern kingdom but not the southern kingdom, like you refer to the Israel to Israel and Judah, and Judah is not Israel, or you refer to all Israel, or you refer to Israel in the larger sense, and that's Israel and Judah together as the whole 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 picture. And so the the thing in Jeremiah thirty one that you mentioned is that basically uh, Jeremiah is prophesying the destruction of Judah, the 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 Jerusalem is the, the seat of the, uh, the Judahite king at the time. And Jeremiah is saying, Jerusalem is going to go down. Ju- uh, Judah itself is going to fully uh, cease to exist as an independent nation and all of this. But one day God is going to restore the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which is a way of referring to both parts of the larger body of Israel. And that's a way of designating that Northern part. But again, the Northern kingdom of Israel had long ceased to, to exist. And that's, like you said, that was a big part of what stimulated my interest in this to begin with was, wait a second. If Jeremiah is saying the house of Israel is going to come back and they're going to be restored, what exactly does he mean by that? 150 years after the destruction of the, of the Northern kingdom. And then of course, what do later readers in the second temple period think Jeremiah means by that because they're looking around and they're going, yeah, the Northern kingdom hasn't existed like this, you know, from way before Jeremiah. So what's he referring to and what, what do they expect? And so a lot of the book then traces through a lot of those things. Now I should say it's important to mention, and this is another important part of this book is there actually, it's not exactly accurate to say that there was no Israel after 
uh, say the eighth century when Assyria destroyed the, the northern kingdom of Israel because there were Israelites who were left behind in the land. Mm-hmm. Some. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the Jewish narrative is that lots of those Israelites intermarried with non-Israelites. And so they sort of ceased to be real Israelites, as it were. But even in the time of Jesus, in the very late part of the second temple period, right before the second temple is destroyed, you have a group of people that are significant rivals to the Jews in the South that call themselves Israelites. They're the people that in the New Testament they call Samaritans. Those people call themselves Israelites and they're called Israelites by outsiders. And even Jews in the period are, you know, they, they don't, you've got some disagreement among some Jews as to whether or not they really count as Israelites. Um, most Jews seem to have rejected the idea that they're real Israelites and, and, uh, and again, part of that has to do with, well, they're here and they're not really in unity with us. And uh, they are, you know, intermarried with various people. So we'll, we'll just we'll we'll understand them as outsiders. They're not really uh, they're not really who they claim to be. But there were some Jews, even even after the Second Temple period, who looked at them and said, eh, you know, they're they're not Jews and their their practices are suspect in certain respects. But they're, they're Israelites. I mean, there, there was some acceptance of that by some Jews. So that automatically, that gives you a group that's not Jewish. They claim to be Israelites. They are called Israelites by outsiders as well. And so that shows you right there that they're not exactly identical. And that's a, a really important piece for understanding how these terms are, are used in, in that time period. So... All of those things go together to kind of explain what's what's happening here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, looking at looking at that, what I, I want to kind of break this down on what what this means because we're talking about a period a long time ago. You're looking at literature that was a long time ago. What what does this mean for us today? Like how is this how has this reached us today? And and in three sources in particular, and you can can just take these one at a time. But what does it mean in scholarship? How how have the how have the equating of of Jew and Israel how how has that made its way into scholarship and how has it impacted scholarship? Secondly, how has it impacted modern culture? Uh, just in our conception of of the terms Jew, Hebrew, Israel, Samaritan, uh, so modern culture. But then third, just at the personal level, like me, Eric Rostad, 2021, Franklin, Tennessee. What what impact does that have? What what does understanding these terms correctly, how they were used during Second Temple Judaism, how does that impact these three areas? Yeah, so those are three pretty disparate questions. Um, the first thing is, in, in scholarship, like I said, the, the primary thing was that, that up until recently, up until essentially my work, the assumption has been that, they're, that basically Jews after the exile claimed the whole heritage of Israel, and so essentially Jew became synonymous with Israelite, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, maybe they're used a little bit differently, but that's, that's basically how this works. So does that mean like the translation wise then somebody translating an ancient text would would just interchangeably use those terms? In some cases that has happened. Now, 
more careful scholars who are more inclined towards verbal uh, precision in their translations have tended not to do that anyway. But the, but the understanding when you interpret it still has been, when it says Israelite, it means the Jews. When it says yeah. Israel, it means the Jews. When it says Israelite, it means a Jew. That, that's what that means. Uh, so that's been the, the general assumption. And then, of course, the ex- explanation for why they're used differently has typically been that insider-outsider uh, explanation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has had a pretty big impact on a lot of things theologically. I mean, certainly in terms of discussions about Christian origins, when, you know, you've got a lot of discussion about Israel in the New Testament. And, uh, for example, in Romans 9 to 11, Paul talks a lot about Israel uh, and Israel's salvation. And exactly who is he talking about? Well, a lot of modern scholars just assume that when Paul says Israel or Israelites, he, he, he obviously means Jews. But if that if they're not identical, then maybe maybe we're not understanding exactly what he's saying in that context. So that that's an important piece, and that's actually what my my second book is is working through is to say once we understand the distinction here, does that when we turn and we read some of these other texts, particularly in in Christianity and in, in early Christian texts, and we see how they're using these terms, maybe that clears up some of the. Um, and I think it does. I think it clears up a lot of the places where people feel like, eh, you know, Paul may be contradicting himself here or, you know, it's not it, it seems strange that he's talking all about uh, equal Gentile participation in the, the Christian community. And then all of a sudden he flips the script and says, well, you know, but it, all Israel, you know, they, Israel has a special advantage. But over here, he says, you know, Jews and Greeks are equal in this regard. So how do we. How do we square that circle? Well, I think part of it is understanding the distinction between the terms that Paul would have assumed uh, that other people wouldn't. So that's that's one extremely important kind of implication. And this works through rabbinic literature. This works through all sorts of other other early Jewish material where you start to look at what they're actually saying and what they're expecting. And it looks a little bit different once you understand the distinctions in those terms. So, so that's, that's sort of number one and number two there. As for number three, you know, how this impacts Eric Rostad and, you know, Eric's legions of fans, I'm, you know, it, it depends because, you know, if you are, so there are political implications of this, there are theological implications of this, and then there are notions that neither really ultimately should be impacted depending on you know how much credence you actually put into these ancient texts, right? So if you are, a, if you are an American Christian who really wants to know about what the prophet's promises are referring to and wants to know what it, what it looks like to support Israel— then having a good sense of how, say, Jesus and Paul and the earliest Christians understood these concepts would have a lot of impact on how you understand what it is to, to say, support Israel. Uh, and that you know, has political implications, that has theological implications, and, and, and more. Uh, for a lot of people, it doesn't have, it, it's, it's an antiquarian question, right? It, it, it doesn't really matter because they're not really all that concerned with, say, what Paul or Jesus think, uh, or what say, you know, Robbie Hillel thinks or, uh, 
you know, what Philo thought. That, that's not really a, of concern other than the fact that we can find out what they thought. So it really depends on your on your perspective on how much this kind of thing is going to is going to matter. But for those and I think it's a pretty sizable group of people worldwide who are looking at the biblical and you know related conceptions and they're applying that to modern politics this does have some pretty significant implications because uh say the modern nation state of israel yes it's called israel but the people from the second temple period would not look at the modern nation state of israel as actually being all of israel or being really properly properly calling itself israel it would be understood as a Jewish state and even, and there are Samaritans there. There's a few hundred Samaritans that continue to sacrifice, uh, at, uh, at Mount Gerizim even today. So, you know, you've got some, but there's, this is not the, you know, there's a whole group of, of say dispensationalist, uh, American Christians and Christians worldwide in, in, in certain respects who look at, say the, the the rise of the modern nation state of Israel as a fulfillment of prophecy that Israel would be restored in the last days. Well, it's interesting. It's a, an, an interesting thought, but it certainly isn't what the prophets or any of the people, you know, like Jesus or Paul or anybody from the second temple period, Philo or anybody else, they would not have looked at the, at the modern nation state of Israel as that. They'd have said, that's a nice Jewish political state, but it is not restored Israel. Why? Well, where are the other tribes? Where's the tribe of Reuben? Where's the tribe of Gad? Where's the tribe of Asher? Where's the tribe of, of, uh, of uh, say, Dan? All of these other things come into play there. Where are some other elements that are uh, in, the, in the prophetic uh, material uh, supposed to be associated with the restoration of Israel? Those things are all lacking. And this is, by the way, why when the modern nation state of Israel was formed, there was some ambivalence and even in, in some cases opposition toward it from very from certain orthodox rabbis who looked at this and said we we were the concern is that that people are going to identify this as the you know the, the fulfillment of the promise but it's not so this, it's not like this is a radical notion in that respect it's been understood within rabbinic judaism and particularly on the more orthodox side of of things in that regard uh for for a long long time but Essentially, what I'm doing is I'm bringing that forward and saying, how should that impact? How should should a more precise understanding of how these terms are used in this period impact our reading of the texts from that period? So it has implications for the present, but um, but again, it depends on what perspective you're coming from on on how much those implications are going to matter. Yeah, yeah, and I think for them, on the personal side of it, the the third part of that question, it, it was, I guess, too, just like if. If if an individual today, 2021, is reading through the Old and the New Testament, and they have the question that you had of what is the difference between Israel and Judah in, in this period, they would have turned to uh, one, of a, one of a few different places. One would be whatever Bible they're using if that had notes in it. The other would be a dictionary. And so I guess the, the question is, does the dictionary, does that Bible commentary, is that, that all has that in mind as well. Like in the, in the book here, you say the default, the default idea 
now nowadays is that those terms were were equal. So if I'm if I'm looking at any other resource like a dictionary or something like that to try to understand these terms, that that's the message I'm going to get from those as well, correct? Yeah, th- th- that's been the default for so long that that is the that's what basically all of the reference materials and everything else have have assumed for generations. And mm-hmm. uh, and and again, I'm basically coming forward and saying eh, that's not actually what the what the source material says if we look more closely. And so, yeah, yeah. most study Bibles, um, you know, Bible dictionaries, things like that are are they're going to be depending on Kuhn's. 1937 article on this, which is uh, significantly misleading. Yeah. Yeah. And as you identify, he wasn't just a Nazi. He was one of the first, like, (laughs) card-carrying member. Well, not just card-carrying. He actually used to, he used to, this is, this was something that was staggering. I I found an, uh, a, a reference of one of his old students where his student was talking about those idyllic times back in the thirties when Dr. Kuhn would, uh, would, uh, would give lectures on rabbinic Judaism while wearing an, uh, a Sturm Abteilung, a SA uniform with the honor dagger tinkling at his side. Uh, he had the honor dagger, you know, with the inscription for being one of the first thousand members of the Sturm Abteilung, which was the, uh, the, uh, it's the storm detachment, uh, is, is what it, what it means, but it was a, a Nazi paramilitary group that he had joined early on in the movement. And he would give his lectures on Judaism while wearing this, Sturm Abteilung uniform, which is just a staggering thought. I mean, yeah. And it's amazing to me also that his student, you know, well after World War II was reflecting back on those idyllic days, which I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of other people wouldn't have regarded as idyllic. But, uh, but in any case, that was a, a kind of amazing thing to think about. And this is ultimately who, who all of these, uh, all of the, the default resources and everything have depended on for nearly a hundred years. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the book was amazing. And as I told you, as I was reading it, it, it could have been multiple books. You know, it, I, I called it books within books. I mean, we haven't even gotten into uh diaspora. Uh, you, you, <laughs> you have a whole chapter on that. And, and I mean, your findings in that are pretty incredible as well. The, what, what diaspora would have meant, um, during that time. And, and, but then just going through all these texts too, it's like the, it's like the greatest uh, <clears throat> idea I have about reading of of finding of finding these things that have have almost become lost to history, and it's almost a rediscovery of what these guys were saying. I mean, your your chapter on Josephus was incredible in the sense that he is writing under Rome. He's writing for the Roman. He's writing a history for the Romans. Like they're paying him to write. Yeah, he's this. under Roman patron. He, he's actually uh, a patron, or he's he's a he's a. Uh, uh, he's under the patronage of the Roman emperor at the time, so he's he's yeah. on the Roman on the Roman payroll as a Jew. But so he cannot he he has to be very careful how he writes. And you just point out multiple cases where he he writes something that had the Romans understood it, he probably <laughs> wouldn't have been writing anymore. He probably would have lost that hand. And. But he does it in such a way that the the Jewish audience would have understood exactly what he was saying, but it, it just flew right over the Romans' heads, or they just wouldn't have cared to look into it deeper. And that's just, I mean, that's just absolutely fascinating to, to pick up stuff like that in these ancient writings. And I, it's almost it's almost like a, a nugget we get 
in our day and age to identify something like that where, but, but more of scholarship kind of views him as having turned in, in his thoughts and, and being under Roman patronage that, that changed his mentality. But you point out, no, like him writing these things would have been very, had they understood what he was saying, it would have been very, it would not have been ended well for him. Right. Yeah. There are places where he is very clearly, if you know the passages in the, in the, the Bible that he's actually referring to, which his Jewish readers would have, then you get that he's basically saying, yeah, Roman rule is here for now, but God's ultimately going to overthrow it. And Israel's going to come forward and, you know, do their thing. And Rome will be subjugated just like all the other nations. But he doesn't say a word of it. He just yeah. takes you right up to that and cites, you know, one of the best examples of this is when he cites the, the, the prophecy of Daniel of how the Romans are in fact going to receive this power and they're going to destroy the temple and do all of these things. And, you know, he's basically showing like how great our prophets are that they even foresaw this stuff. And he's like, yeah, the prophet Daniel, he, he saw this and he saw the Romans coming and the Romans would be favored by God and that they would destroy the temple because of the unfaithfulness of, 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 uh, of God's people and all of these things. And then he says, and Daniel had more to say about what would come after that. But, you know, let's just not get into that. We'll just stop here because, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just really beyond the purview of our discussion. And if you know what he's referring to, the next, the next lines after the destruction of the temple are, uh, they have to do with the destruction of the people who destroy the temple, that God will come in and wipe them out and establish the everlasting and eternal rule of Israel. <laughs> and, and so, you know... He's like, yeah, you know, and it also says more about what's coming after that. But, you know, we're really more worried about what's already happened than, you know, about the future. So, you know, that's that. And he just takes you right up to the wow. threshold. And a Jewish reader is going to be like, I know what it says. <laughs> and the Romans are like, no Roman is presumably going to go and, and, and look up the, the, the citation. He's going to have to find where it is in the book of Daniel and then read it and then have it interpreted to him to explain like, okay, so this was referring to us as the Romans, right? Okay. So what's this next part talking about? Well, um, yeah, I'm, and I'm guessing that had a Roman decided to go and, and investigate that, there would have been some level of like, not really wanting to cooperate in terms of uh, guiding him to the right spots. So, so, yeah. you know, this is the sort of thing that, that he does on more than one occasion where he speaks, he says one thing, and there's kind of a second layer to it. There's a hidden transcript, as uh, James Scott has talked about, where, you know, the, the people who are insiders on Josephus side of things are going to get what he's saying, but nobody else is really going to get the uh, the subtext there. Uh, and, yeah. you know, it's sort of like when you quote a movie that you and a few buddies in the room know the, the next few lines of the movie and you're all kind of laughing, but nobody else knows that that was actually a movie quote that yeah. is insulting everybody in the room with the next lines, right? So that's the kind of thing that he does while actually advocating that everybody just sit tight and not rebel against the Romans. Like he's like specific about that. He's very quietistic in his approach, not because he's just a Roman stooge who's like, okay, well, I'm getting fat on the Roman payroll now, so we're all good. But because he believes that, you know, if we try to do this without God's help, it's just going to backfire like it did with the temple. But God's promised he's going to set it right and when it happens, they'll get theirs. So yeah. that's and then, and the then approach. You see that idea across the other authors as well, where 
this idea of Israel is not, it's not going to be a political thing. It's good. God is going to be doing it. It's not, it's so they, a, a, multiple different authors there said something similar where, you know, don't, don't try to rebel against the people, even though you're under exile, it's not, it's not fun. It's not pleasant, but, uh, yeah. And you write a lot about that, the good figs, the bad figs, it just really interesting stuff. I loved it. Yeah. The, the, so to, to give everybody some indication of what, what you're talking about with the good figs and bad figs, that's a reference to uh, one of the prophets where the, the people who had been left behind in the land after other people had been taken out of the land looked at the other people and they were like, huh, yeah, God got, God took out the garbage and, you know, left all of us behind, you know, th- those people were, were, were the ones that were holding us down. And the prophet basically comes in and says, no, God picked the good figs. The rotten ones are the ones left in the land. And so this is the, the reference that you're getting there. But again, that's an, an example of how you can cite something that isn't necessarily, um, uh, that, that, that isn't necessarily stated. And like, if your audience doesn't know it, it's going to go over everybody's head. Well, let's close out with a few questions. And um, the first, you, you alluded to it with uh, with speaking of, about Kuhn, but I was just curious if there are any other findings. I mean, this was 17 plus years of your life, uh, the research. Uh, Kuhn, you know, discovering his Nazi roots and, and that and how that impacted our, our modern day conception of Jew and in the terms Jew and Israel. Uh, what, were, what were one or two other findings from from this research that, that ended up in this book that, that really surprised you? Oh, there, one of them actually led to the diaspora Judaism chapter that you were talking about. Um, I remember looking at, uh, there was a, there was a chapter, uh, by Louis Feldman, who's one of the main, he's a giant in Josephus research, uh, from the 20th century. And he made this bizarre comment, what I thought was bizarre, where he said, you know, Josephus obviously took a positive view of, you know, diaspora and exile. And I was like, that's weird. Why would like put yourself in Josephus shoes? This is a this is a Jewish priest based in Jerusalem who was nationalist enough to fight against the Romans initially. Like he's he he says he was a general of the Jewish forces in the Jewish revolt before basically his his platoon got destroyed. And then he defected to the Romans. You know, he 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 knew where where his butter was bread or where his uh, uh the his bread was buttered, and you know went defect, defected to the Romans and and um and then proceeded to watch his city get burned and his you know a variety of uh of of priestly colleagues and friends and every everything else get butchered. I mean, the amount of the, the massacre uh, the, the massacres that this man saw of his own countrymen and of his own friends and and colleagues and all of this not cool and you're going to tell me that this guy then once he goes to, to to rome just because he's eating well on the on the uh the payroll of the roman emperor is now thumb two thumbs up to to diaspora that seemed to me really strange so i was like what in the world is going on with this and i did some more digging into that and i discovered that the whole thing traced back to uh, another actually German scholar uh, and a couple other uh, a couple others beyond that. But basically there was this whole trend towards 
this idea and, and, and it wasn't spelled out in Feldman's article because he was just leaning on this assumption from other stuff that essentially after the return from uh, from exile that is narrated in Ezra and Nehemiah uh, in the Bible, after you had some Jews return and the temple get rebuilt, since Jews you know who were in exile could conceivably have returned to the land, but many didn't, obviously many Jews outside the land, the default sort of paradigm for people living outside the land basically became diaspora is good. Diaspora is a positive thing. Diaspora is what we, what we actually prefer. We like living, you know, in, in this, in this context. And so the, uh, the prior theological notion that, that exile is punishment from God is basically just dropped in favor of a more positive diaspora theology. This is that idea. And again, I, I, I kind of stumbled on this because of this weird statement that what I thought was weird from Feldman. And so then I dug at the roots of that assumption, like, okay, is it actually the case that we have good evidence for Jews in the diaspora taking a positive view of diaspora? And when you look at the evidence that was presented for it, it falls apart as soon as you like blow on it. It's and all of a sudden it just completely falls over and you go, wait a second. There's no evidence of this. There's still, uh, you know, all of these texts and all of these passages are still referring to diaspora and exile and all of these things in, in exceedingly negative terms. So where did this come from? And there's some, I don't want to spoil, you know, all of that, but in the book, you know, I go into a lot of what's going on there in terms of some of the proclivities of the modern scholars that basically are reading this and of course, many modern Jews do take a, a positive view of this, and and many of them, uh, many scholars, I think, read their own attitudes essentially into uh, the, the the Jews of the Second Temple period, even though those attitudes are not actually matched within the text. I mean, there's one 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 particular scholar who I love to death. He's a lovely, uh, a, a great person. Um, and that's one of the things that's I think really important to get across about scholarship is you know you disagree with people that you really like that's part of the game but he 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 makes this this comment that well you know there's all these various texts that are written in the second temple period that are really negative about exile and they talk about exile and diaspora in a variety of ways but i mean obviously that doesn't apply to their own situation you know they're taking a much more positive view of their own situation because you know they're talking about exile and that has to do with you know the past right and I'm like, wait a second. So you're telling me that all the stuff that these people are writing that's really negative doesn't apply to their own situation? Like, why are they writing it? And these are the sorts of things that ultimately, you know, I take on in that chapter and, and some of the some of the chapters that follow it. Uh, that was startling to me, though, It was was looking at that. And, and there were a few other places where uh, one I'll, I'll limit to one other one uh, where I kept seeing scholars contrasting like well you know obviously uh you know the 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 uh the the assumption obviously jews in this period regarded themselves as the whole of israel and you know the north was basically forgotten and you know jews had taken over the whole heritage of israel now there does seem to be a little bit of an exception here in say first and second chronicles but that's different from ezra and nehemiah where obviously they're just you know they're all about Israel, the only Israelites are Jews. And then I'd find another article by someone on Ezra Nehemiah who'd be like, well, you know, 
obviously, you know, these are the, the Jews claim the whole heritage of Israel and all that. But this section of, of, of Ezra really takes a different perspective on this. And, you know, it's 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 its own exception here, unlike all of these other. Th- and I keep finding this stuff and go, you guys should really talk. Right. I mean, <laughs> the exceptions start piling up to where maybe those aren't exceptions. Maybe that's the rule. And um, and and maybe the best example of that is in Ezra and Nehemiah, where scholars for for a long time, modern scholars for a long time, have regarded the events of Ezra and Nehemiah, where people are returning from exile from in the in the Persian period, as the the fulfillment of prophecy that this is Israel's uh, restoration, and you have articles that are written on the restoration period, and that this is the restoration promised by the prophets. But then if you read Ezra and Nehemiah carefully, it presents itself as not the restoration. Like the main characters, the protagonists of the story refer to the, you know, this as, well, you know, God has given us, you know, just a little reviving, but, you know, we're still slaves in our, in our own land. And, you know, we, and there's still these efforts at sort of corporate repentance to try to get the real thing happening. And each time it fails and over and over again, the the whole thing Ezra Nehemiah is a is sort of an account of multiple failures to to produce the restoration that they're that they're hoping for, and then you look at how all of these Jews in the Second Temple period who refer to Ezra Nehemiah after the fact how they read the book and all of them read it that way, they don't read it as the restoration of Israel, and so it, you have the modern scholarly construct that differs with how the the Jews of that period are actually reading these things. And again, that was one of those things that, that was really surprising to look at some of the contrasts there as it, as it came across. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you, you may have covered this in the book. I may have read right over it. But do we know when the term Jew was first used? Was it pre-exile or was it post-exile? It's pre-exile. So it, it, the first time that the, the term Jew, and actually in this case, it's Yehudim uh, or Yehudi, uh, the, the, the Hebrew uh, form of it. Uh, that, that gets translated as Jew is in the book of, of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is edited in the, po- in the post-exilic period. So after the exile, um, after the destruction of the, of the temple. So it's, it, but it occurs in that, in a pre-exilic context and probably, tr- you know, material that, that was written or, or whatnot right at around the time of the, of the destruction of the, of the Southern kingdom. And it refers specifically to people from Judah. So uh, that term, Yehudi, refers to an inhabitant of Judah, a person who is from the kingdom of Judah. Uh, and then when they go into exile, they then retain that same thing that, you know, when if you travel to Scotland, you are an American. Uh, and the same thing is the case for people from Judah. They take the name Yehudim from being from Judah. And so this is a it's a term that essentially means Judahite. Uh, and Jew is okay. just short, essentially, for Judahite. Uh, and you, know, okay. you can hear that. Judah, Jew, Judah. That's what it ultimately mm-hmm. means then. And, uh, and my argument in the book is that, that that central meaning basically obtains. It, it, stays, it stays as the central uh, sense of the, of the term throughout the Second Temple period, that it continues to be associated with Judah in a... Uh, specific sense rather than uh, than used in a broader sense as a as a synonym for Israelite. Okay. 
Well, good. Well, if you are still listening at this point, we know you're interested in this. And uh, what Jason is going to do later this year is to run a sort of a seminar where we go through this book. So if that's something that would be interesting to you, uh, we'll have more information in the show notes and I'll I'll highlight that on on social media. But uh, it'd be something where you'd sign up. We'll go through the book, maybe a chapter or two at a time uh, over Zoom. So it doesn't matter where you are. And um and if you are interested in exploring this further, we'll have, we'll have more details for you in the, in the show notes. All right, well, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you, especially if you have read this book or if you're interested in reading it. Remember, you can go to the show notes to sign up for that, that seminar. That'll be in September and October. Be over seven to eight nights, and we'll cover uh, the, the book, probably a chapter or two per night. Jason will be on the, the calls, answer questions, dig deeper. And uh, you can also purchase the book directly from Jason. I'll link to his website where, where you can get a signed copy of his book. So please do that if, if you have any interest. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy this book. This was one of those books. It's an it's a academic book, so it, w- it was a little more challenging than, than most of the other books that, that I've read for this project. Uh, so I read through it th- uh, one time where I just was trying to get an idea of the, the broad picture of the book. And then I read through it a second time immediately after. And, that, and the second time I, was, I dug in deep, I had, uh, I had all those other books open uh, with reference. I had the Bible open. I had another Bible with like an apocrypha open. And, um, oh, it was just, it was fun. It was a really, really good book. So, uh, I, I hope you do pick it up and, and, and read it at some point, And then you can enhance that reading experience with, with the seminar. Well, if you have any questions, you can contact me at eric at booksoftitans.com. You can also go to the website. It's stock full of resources to help you find the best books to create your own reading list and to just, to see what I've thought about books and, and uh, to, to read through some of my reviews and what I've found good and, and bad in, in the books that I've read. I'll be back in a couple weeks. I'll be covering another book from this year's reading project. It'll most likely be the first book of the, the, the Shelby Foote Civil War series. So book one of three of that series, I'll, I'll, I'll go into that. Until then, keep reading, keep listening, and I'm out. Thank you.